Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story involves greed and deception, nothing new there then. But it also involves hundreds and possibly thousands of deaths globally. A huge thank you to a friend of the show, Chris Wood, who has researched and written this story. Thanks, Chris. Much appreciated. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who is pulling the strings? A detective with no one to trust, a killer with nothing to lose. I'm delighted that this week's show is again sponsored by Hangman, the eagerly anticipated follow-up novel from Daniel Cole, author of Sunday Times best-selling thriller Ragdoll. You don't need to read Ragdoll to read Hangman, but both are perfect for true crime fans. I love the writing in Hangman. Daniel Cole is an exceptional author, and it's everything you don't get on this podcast, quick-witted and pacey. But don't just take my word for it. Daniel Cole has big fans in the genre, like MJ Arledge, who said of Ragdoll, a brilliant breathless thriller, and bestseller Rachel Abbott, who called Cole a star. Have you bought your copy of Hangman yet? What do you mean no? Hangman is available at all good bookshops and of course online. So please support this podcast and get yourself a great book today. That's Hangman by Daniel Cole. Thank you. As usual, I'd like to say a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon. Without you, I wouldn't have been able to keep producing a weekly show for over two years. And goodness me, where would we be without this podcast? Hosted by the sexiest man in true crime, huh? Well, (laughs) maybe, something like that. Civil disorder on a mammoth scale would surely be a real possibility if I stopped recording, right? Right. In particular, I would like to thank this week's new supporters. That's Sarah Cameron, Kathy Conway-Archer, David Trimble, Kaz Harvey and Nancy Perron, who has increased her pledge. The December bonus episode number 22 will be released this week. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks again so much. So let's quickly set some context for the time we are looking at, 2006. In music, Razorlight's excellent single America is something I remember fondly from this year. Not so fondly, but equally as memorable for all the wrong reasons, was Tony Christie's World Cup song. Remember that? Is this the way to the World Cup? (laughs) Indeed. What a shocker. It was an utter shocker, wasn't it? And talking of shockers, in May, manager of Middlesbrough Football Club, Steve McLaren, agreed to become the next manager of the England national football team. Blimey, who could ever forget the Wally with the brolly? And in true crime news on the 2nd of December, a young woman's body was found in a brook near Ipswich. Her death was initially treated as unexplained. But during the following weeks, we watched in horror as the bodies of five sex workers were recovered in Ipswich, with Steve Wright eventually found guilty of all the killings. In his 2015 article for Vanity Fair, journalist Geoffrey E. Stern starts with the following passage. On a Sunday morning in the fall of 2009, a 26-seat bus carrying one tonne of explosives made its way towards the Ministry of Justice in Baghdad. Security in Iraq had been improving for more than a year. A US troop surge seemed to have worked, and in a demonstration of the country's stability, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki 
had ordered security measures reduced. Blast walls were taken down. Traffic was allowed closer to government buildings. The bus was not searched at any of the checkpoints near the administrative centre. The driver pulled right up to the ministry building and then the payload detonated with such tremendous force that to those nearby it felt as if a meteor had struck. Cars spun through the air and landed on top of one another. Debris rocketed through windows a dozen storeys above the street. As an opaque plume of smoke and dust rose hundreds of feet into the air, a van carrying another bomb exploded just up the street in front of the Provisional Administration Building. In just a matter of seconds, 155 people had been killed and more than 500 injured. Iraq's most hopeful post-Saddam interlude was over, shattered by a new wave of devastating bombings. Two days later, a little-known Al-Qaeda-linked group, who would later take on the name ISIS, claimed credit. But the government was less concerned with who had carried it out than how the attack was even possible. How could nearly 4,000 pounds of explosives have passed undetected into one of the city's most tightly controlled areas? The first impulse was to look for infiltrators and collaborators. Some 60 suspects who'd worked at checkpoints and local police posts near the bombings were rounded up. But the real problem, it turned out, was with the handheld bomb detectors being used at just about every Iraqi-run checkpoint in the country. They were toys. They'd never worked. It had all been an expensive charade, costing the Iraqi government tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of lives, and all engineered by a portly middle-aged salesman in England. This attack and similar atrocities, along with news of suicide bombers causing devastation in Iraq, has been sadly all too commonplace in recent years. If we take a look back at the years between 2008 and 2009 alone, for example, more than a thousand Iraqis were killed in such explosions, with thousands more suffering horrendous, life-changing injuries. Little wonder, then, that a solution was desperately sought after. Anything that could help possibly prevent this carnage in the future had to be a good thing. An apparent saviour appeared in the guise of a Somerset businessman named James McCormick. The 56-year-old McCormick was born in Liverpool in 1956. In school, he was an average student, and he spent his childhood in the US, where his dad lived. He moved back to England, to the West Country, where except for two years working as a policeman, he spent the beginning of his career in telecommunications. In the early 1980s, he worked on the sales team for a radio components company, before in 1984, he joined Pi Electronics, where he worked for nearly a decade, until the company was bought by electronics giant Philips. Then in 1993, he went out on his own, and started a company that sold electronic equipment in Africa. So he had strong technical credentials and a global network of contacts. And in his personal life, well, this was unexceptional, as he lived in a quiet town in Somerset with his wife and his two children. The perilous situation in Iraq and other trouble spots meant that the possible detection of any type of explosive device could literally mean the difference between life or death. 
With this in mind, James McCormick saw an opportunity to use his technical prowess to save countless lives and so set about creating a device that would be capable of detecting the whereabouts of bombs, explosives and even missing people. And no doubt, as well as the altruistic reasons for doing this, he knew it was something that could make him a great deal of money. James first saw the gap in the market following the devastating 9-11 terror attacks in New York. At this time, his ideas were very much in their infancy, and he would take a further five years to develop his plans into what he really wanted to achieve. And then finally, in 2006, the ADE-100 was launched. The ADE initials were the shorthand for advanced detection equipment. Over the following three years, James sought to adapt the design. Basically, he was jazzing it up and giving it a more glossy and furnished look, which would make it much more attractive to potential buyers. With this in mind, he also began to make increasingly optimistic claims in his sales and marketing literature about just what the device was capable of achieving. The result of his efforts was the creation of the ADE-651. The new model was apparently manufactured in labs here in the UK and was said to have an even greater detection capacity than the previous model. These powers of detection would clearly be of great interest to countries that were in the midst of daily sufferings at the hands of random explosions and the threat of suicide bombings. So it was that in 2007, James McCormick managed to negotiate a deal to sell his devices to the Iraqi government. And the ADE-651 devices were soon in use at all border crossings in Iraq. Indeed, between 2008 and 2010, the purchase of over 6,000 devices were sanctioned. They weren't cheap either, and these transactions alone netted James a staggeringly cool £38 million. Come on, none of us are really surprised by those figures. There has always been a huge sum of money in war and defence, and there was little sign of this changing with the potential benefits of increasingly sophisticated technology. Beyond these sales, the detectors were also being sold further afield. Pakistan used them to guard Karachi Airport. In some Middle Eastern countries, they were being used to protect hotels. And in southern Thailand, they were even used in the threats against the long-standing insurgency faced there, with the armed forces using them during security sweeps. The ADE was also sold to the Lebanese army, to the Mexican army, to the police in Belgium, to the Movan Pick Hotel Group's property in Bahrain. It was sold in Romania and the Republic of Georgia. In Asia, as well as Thailand, there were clients in Bangladesh, China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Pakistan and Vietnam. And in the Middle East, the device made it to Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Syria, the United Arab Emirates and Iran. In Africa, it was bought by Kenya, Libya, Niger and Tunisia. The burgeoning success of these life-saving tools was incredible. Great news for the purchasers and for James McCormick. But just how exactly did they work? James claimed that they were in fact powered by static electricity, which was generated by marching on the spot. I know, 
it does sound rather implausible, doesn't it? With theories like this doing the rounds, coupled with the fact that bombs were continuing to blast through checkpoints undetected, it was perhaps unsurprising that serious doubts over the validity of these bomb detectors were quickly being raised. The most serious of these concerns were from the coalition forces of British and American troops, who incidentally were choosing not to use the device. Detective Inspector Edward Heath of the Avon and Somerset Constabulary was contacted by the British and American military in regards to the ADE-651 and how it was being used. They'd witnessed it being used many times whilst out on their patrols and they were incredibly dubious of the merits of the tool which their Iraqi counterparts had come to rely upon. They decided to examine the device more thoroughly and the ADE-651 was x-rayed with a view to understanding the components and the inner workings of the device. What was found, however, was more insightful than they could have possibly hoped. Basically, there was nothing inside the tool. No components, no circuit boards, no wiring. It was nothing more than an empty shell. Yeah, that's right. These empty shells were on the front line for apparently combating the deadly threat of terror attacks in Iraq. To say they were staggered by this finding is an understatement. With this information, detectives were quick to pay McCormick a visit, dropping in at the offices of his company, ATSC. When they arrived, they were again majorly surprised by what they found. Or perhaps more accurately, what they didn't find. D.I. Heath explained, We were expecting to find a factory production line of these devices being produced in sanitised conditions. But there was no lab at all, just piles of boxes of plastic components all stuck together. And during the search, the discovery of an innocuous single piece of paper would eventually lead to the arrest of McCormick. The piece of paper they found was the receipt for an American gimmick, a novelty golf ball finder. They were priced at less than $20 each, but would be the key to unlocking the entire investigation. This plastic gadget, which was marketed as the perfect gift for the golfer who was everything, claimed to use advanced technology, which was programmed to detect the elements found in golf balls. So if you were like me, and constantly losing golf balls in the rough, in the water, on neighbouring fairways, in fact anywhere but the hole, then these might be very handy devices. But to search out bombs and other explosive devices? Well, I'd say there's more chance of me making the next Ryder Cup team than these devices being successful at that. And if it hadn't cost real lives, the sheer ludicrousness of it all would be laugh out loud funny. The receipt found at McCormick's office was for 100 of these golf ball finders. McCormick simply removed the sticker, replacing it with his own, and calling it an explosive detector. In 2009, amidst unrelenting pressure to prove his doubters wrong, McCormick was forced to hold a news conference in Baghdad. Questions were asked about why the bombs were still going off, killing and maiming hundreds of people, despite the use of his supposed super tool that apparently prevented such tragedies. During the conference, McCormick had come up with no plausible explanation as to how the device actually worked. He held a demo 
which supposedly showed the detector in action. But when police officers poured over footage of this demonstration, they were astonished at just how ridiculous the whole thing was. All the demo consisted of was a completely stage-managed affair, showing a soldier attempting to pick out one hand grenade amongst other items. It was becoming increasingly clear to officers that James McCormick hadn't in fact devised a life-saving bomb detector at all, but had rather simply been selling golf ball finders for obscenely inflated prices to sellers increasingly desperate for a solution. In reality, they weren't even particularly jazzed up. They really were simply cheap golf ball finders. The bizarre workings of the device had, of course, began to attract more and more attention, and not in a positive way for McCormick. In 2010, the BBC's Newsnight produced an expose of the device, in which the UK government's Department for Business, Innovation and Skills announced that tests carried out on it revealed that the technology used in the ADE651 is not suitable for bomb detection. As a result of this, a UK government ban on the sale of the ADE651 device was placed on their sale in Iraq and Afghanistan with immediate effect. Amazingly, what also transpired from the programme was that some senior Iraqi officials were fully aware that the devices did not work and it was found that some had received bribes to ensure that the devices were purchased. When questions began to be asked in Baghdad about the detectors amid the continuing casualties, Major General Jihad al-Jibri, the head of the Interior Ministry's Directorate for Combat Explosives, declared, I don't care what they say. I know more about bombs than the Americans do. In fact, I know more about bombs than anyone in the world. He and two other Iraqi officials are now serving jail terms for corruption related to how McCormick won the huge £56 million contract in Iraq. When police finally knocked at his door, McCormick was perfectly relaxed and pleasant to the detectives, when surely inside he must have known that his life was due to fall apart. He didn't refuse to comment. He didn't request a lawyer. Instead, he sat in the interview room and for six hours calmly tried to explain to the detectives how his device worked. When confronted with the irrefutable evidence though, McCormick was still not in the mood to confess to his fraudulent activities. Instead, he confidently told officers that they did not understand the workings behind his amazing scientific discovery. He really didn't seem to attribute much intelligence to anybody else and came across as very arrogant about his own ability. Soon though, he began to slowly tie himself up in knots. He started to give very confusing answers to the questions levelled at him and it was plainly clear that the man had no knowledge whatsoever in terms of the science behind such devices. This was further backed up by genuine scientists who poured scorn over his claims, actually stating that much of what he had said breached the laws of physics, and that McCormick's clumsy attempts at sounding like a scientist were so far from reality that he would often use specific terms but in completely the wrong contexts. Detectives were now confident 
that they had enough evidence to prosecute James McCormick for fraud. A major issue here, though, was that it was absolutely critical that they could completely discredit the device. As if he was found not guilty, he would then be able to say to the watching world that his device had been questioned, no issues were found following testing procedures, and he could continue to sell them. Attempts to completely discredit McCormick and his invention would begin at his trial at the Old Bailey in March 2013, which would last six weeks. Richard Whittam QC prosecuting opened by asserting that former British officers who had served in Iraq believed that the fakes had cost real lives. With this in mind, I'm sure some of you are wondering why McCormick wasn't charged and tried with manslaughter. And indeed, this is something that was considered. But it was considered a much more difficult route to pursue and to gain a conviction, whereas a fraud conviction was far more likely to come to fruition. So McCormick was charged with three counts of having in his possession an article for use in the course of fraud and three further charges of adapting an article knowing it to be designed for use in a connected fraud. The trial itself was really quite remarkable, some amazing findings. One such discovery found that some of the detectors were sold for up to £27,000 each But when we hear of some of the more fanciful claims of their capabilities, perhaps it isn't too surprising that they were able to command such incredible prices. For as well as being able to find explosives, they could also uncover drugs, ivory, fluid, and even people. Wow, maybe for an extra 5k, they could dance the Macarena too. It was also claimed that these items could be detected up to 0.6 miles underground, up to three miles from the air, and even a 100 feet below water. The court was told the devices did not work, and he knew they did not work. He had them manufactured so they could be sold, and despite the fact they did not work, people brought them for a handsome but unwarranted profit. McCormick even falsely represented himself as a member of the International Association of Bomb Technicians and Investigators, using their logo without permission presumably in attempts to generate greater credibility for him and the device. Like back in the early days when he called himself Doctor, when in fact he hadn't gained a PhD. The man with the unenviable task of defending McCormick was Defence QC Jonathan Laidlaw, who claimed that other devices had also been used at the affected checkpoints and therefore there was no proof that his client's device had been the one to cost lives. And in court, McCormick was still so sure about what he was saying. He still hadn't accepted that the game was up and he maintained his bold statements. He reiterated that the device could bypass all forms of concealment, detecting drugs, explosives and people. He went further, claiming that at no point had he ever had any negative results from any of his customers. But the overwhelming evidence that the devices lacked any grounding in science and were completely ineffectual, flew in the face of any vague defence offered by McCormick. On the 23rd of April 2013, he was found guilty of three counts of fraud and remanded in custody until May for sentencing. Throughout the trial, it became apparent that McCormick had gained huge sums of wealth due to his activities. Sales from the ADE 651 
bought him a farmhouse in Somerset, a £3.5 house in Bath, formerly owned by Nicolas Cage. Ironically, both men being particularly inept actors. Holiday homes in Cyprus and Florida, a 600 grand luxury yacht, and even three horses for one of his daughters. But just why had he done this? A British prosecutor later commented that McCormick seemed to be neither a sociopath nor evil-minded. He was just exceptionally greedy. But then again, he never appeared all that comfortable as a man of wealth. He barely used the house in Bath that he bought from Nicolas Cage, despite its large indoor pool and its Bang & Olufsen entertainment system, and he spent very little time at the vacation house he bought in Cyprus. On the 2nd of May, McCormick was sentenced to 10 years in prison. In passing the sentence, Judge Richard Horne said, Your fraudulent conduct in selling so many useless devices for simply enormous profit promoted a false sense of security and in all probability materially contributed to causing death and injury to innocent individuals. It was also noted that McCormick had not expressed any remorse or recognition of his wrongdoing, and that his culpability as a fraudster has to be placed in the highest category. The judge added further, if this case does not merit the maximum possible sentence, I don't know what does. Outside court, Detective Superintendent Nigel Rock echoed the sentiments from the judge inside court. He said, McCormick's profits were obscene and simply fed his greedy and extravagant lifestyle. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, he has shown no shame. He has shown no remorse and he carried on with a completely cavalier disregard for the consequences of his contract. Following the sentencing, some of the stories of human suffering were brought to light that were created by McCormick's fraud. Hanin Alwan, an Iraqi woman, needed 59 operations after she was injured in a bomb blast in January 2009. At the time she was two months pregnant and she lost her child, she said, When people pass through the checkpoints using these devices, they thought they would be safe, but they're useless. The man who sold them has no conscience. He is morally bankrupt. How could he sell them just for money and destroy other people's lives? Abdul Hamid Al-Mazri, a 22-year-old student, was near the Hamra Hotel in Baghdad on his way back to home in the Jediya district when he was caught in the blast. I went to the area after the bomb because it was so near our house. We wanted to make sure none of our neighbours were hurt, said his 25-year-old sister, Rahima. It was a terrible sight, even for a place like Baghdad. There were people hurt, lying in blood, people dead. We didn't know at the time that my brother was one of those who died. We went to the morgue after they told us what had happened to him. My mum fainted when we got to the body. We didn't know anything about the bomb detectors then. We found out later that they were false. They've been using them all over the city. I just feel very, very angry. I can't believe that anyone would do such a thing. To put so many lives at risk just to make money. It's shameful, it's shameful. I think this powerful testimony captures the most fundamental wrongdoing of McCormick. How many other stories similar to this one would have been created through his actions?
And of course, these were the lucky ones that actually survived the ordeal of a bomb blast. I think that many people would feel the description of him as morally bankrupt is perfectly succinct and apt in this case. After the hearing, he was ordered to face a confiscation hearing which would seek to recompense those he had wronged and see him forced to repay vast sums of his ill-gotten gains. He was subsequently ordered to forfeit almost £8 million under a proceeds of crime order, including a single repayment to Iraq of £2.3 million. However, as a side note to the case, in only April of this year, James McCormick had his jail term extended by two years for failing to pay back nearly £2 million. Following the sale of many of his expensive purchases, a shortfall still remained, and as such he was ordered to serve an additional default sentence of 842 days in the slammer. Police said they could even still pursue McCormick if more assets were discovered or if he was to come into any money in the future. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I think it's almost comical if it wasn't so deadly serious. Sadly, war is big business, with lots of money to be made by individuals, companies and countries. We've heard extensively about the huge wealth that McCormick lusted after and did for a time achieve. But although he was able to enjoy the trappings and glamorous lifestyle for a considerable period of time, the willingness of the authorities to ensure that his debts are not allowed to be forgotten about will ensure that these offences will live with him for a far longer period. But for the families of those killed or severely injured when supposedly protected by McCormick's devices, his punishment is surely far too little and far too late. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast and thanks again to Chris Wood for bringing such an interesting story to our attention. To discuss this case or any aspect of UK True Crime, please head to our Facebook group where you'll be made very, very welcome. To support the show, please join our select group at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you can access the 21 full-length bonus episodes, naked photos and other exclusive content. This helps me keep the show going weekly, so if you can support me there, please do so. So that is all for me for now, so until we speak in next week, please take it easy, do all you can to avoid the constant press coverage of Brexit, and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.